This Week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast exploring hot topics and exciting advances in childhood cancer. TWIPO is produced by Solving Kids Cancer, nonprofits located in New York and London dedicated to improving research and supporting families because every kid deserves to grow up. Subscribe to TWIPO through your favorite podcast platform. Hi, everyone, and welcome to This Week in Pediatric Oncology the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Welcome to episode 106, recorded on November 16th, 2022. I'm your host, Brenda Weigel, from the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I am here today with our wonderful This Week in Pediatric Oncology guest, Dr. Garrett Brodeur. Dr. Brodeur is currently Professor of Pediatrics at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Brodeur began his career in medical school at Washington University, where he then went on to pediatrics residency at St. Louis Children's Hospital. He followed this with a fellowship in pediatric hematology oncology at St. Jude Children's Hospital. He then returned to St. Louis and the University of Washington for a postdoctoral studies in molecular genetics. He joined then the faculty at Washington University where he stayed for a decade prior to joining Children's Hospital of Philadelphia as faculty in 1993. Dr. Brodeur has had an incredible research and clinical career. He has led the field in therapeutic development for neuroblastoma and solid tumors, and most recently has been a leading force in the understanding and evaluation of children with cancer predisposition syndromes. Since 2014, he has served as director of the Cancer Predisposition Program at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. From 2015 to 2017, Dr. Brodeur chaired the American Association of Cancer Research Pediatric Cancer Working Group and really focused national and international efforts on leading the way in describing and setting the standard for evaluation for children with cancer predisposition syndromes. Dr. Brodeur also runs a funded and nationally funded uh, childhood cancer predisposition study and is on the steering committee of the Children's Oncology Group Cancer Predisposition Committee. He has published over 250 manuscripts, chapters, and articles. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Dr. Garrett Brodeur to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. And we're gonna be discussing genetic predisposition in cancer in childhood cancer today's understanding. Welcome, Garrett. Well, thank you very much for having me and inviting me, Brenda. It's a great pleasure to be here and have this conversation with you. And um, please call me Garrett. So, <laughs> And Garrett, thank you. Um, and it is my pleasure. Um, and and I would love for you to tell our audience um, and me uh, that uh, you spent years in the lab working on new therapies and studying models of childhood cancer, but really had this background in cancer genetics. And how does that evolve into your interest in cancer predisposition syndromes? And how has that evolved over the last, say, decade or so for you? 
Right. Well, it actually starts back before medical school. I was planning to be a neurologist and I worked in a lab studying normal and malignant neurons. You can imagine what the malignant neurons were. So they were neuroblastoma. So I spent time with a neurologist clinically and I spent time with a pediatric oncologist. It was Dr. Vita Land at uh, St. Louis Children's. And it seemed to me that the potential to impact on the career was much greater uh, for pediatric cancer and neuroblastoma than it was in neurology. So I began doing cytogenetics of the neuroblastoma cell lines to sort of characterize them and see if one I could identify any recurring changes. And that work in the long term ended up in the identification of MICN amplification and, and its prognostic significance. But I was studying the cytogenetics of the tumors, but um, I was also involved with taking care of patients uh, there and there was one family where two children had neuroblastoma and the father at age 44 developed neuroblastoma. So this this was back in the 1970s before you were born. This is actually what got me first interested in, in genetics and genetic predisposition. So the next major change after I came to uh, CHOP and uh, was division chief, uh, one of my first hires was Kim Nichols to set up a cancer predisposition program back in 1999. And, and uh, because it seemed to me, even though it seemed like a small percentage of all patients uh, were genetically predisposed, it, they just as we had a survivorship program and a palliative care program and so forth, I thought we should have a predisposition program. And, and so she developed that program, but then left to go to St. Jude in, in 2014. And that's, as you mentioned, when I took over leading the program, because I'd really had a longstanding interest in this area, but it was my first opportunity to really run the show, so to speak. So it was very exciting. So let me mention one other thing, just to put this in perspective. Mm -hmm. So if one steps back and thinks, what causes childhood cancer? The general answer is, well, we don't know, and that mistakes made are made as one cell becomes 10 trillion cells during embryonic life, and, and as cells multiply during growth as a child, and mistakes happen, and one mistake leads to another, and then you get a cancer. And that's probably true for the vast majority of, of cancers, but uh, we're beginning to appreciate that a substantial number of children, probably at least you know, 15, 20%, maybe uh, much more than that, um, are genetically predisposed. So we don't know of any environmental causes that are major causes of childhood cancer. Obviously, you want to avoid radiation and avoid excess sun exposure, and you want to avoid breathing organic solvents and things like that. But uh, there aren't too many environmental factors that contribute to a substantial number of childhood cancers. Whereas we're, we now understand there are nearly 100 syndromes and over 200 genes that if mutated in the right way or the wrong way in, in the germline or in the normal cells of the body, that those patients are at increased risk to develop uh, specific types of cancer. And if we know who they are and we know what they're at risk for develop to develop, and to some extent, even when they're likely to develop, like childhood, adolescence, young adulthood, then we can do surveillance for those cancers 
in a way that isn't too intrusive to the patient, but can identify tumors early when they're small. And generally, when we pick up tumors by screening, we pick up a grape and not a grapefruit when they would otherwise present clinically with a kidney tumor or a liver tumor or something in the abdomen or chest where you can't really easily see and feel. Um, so uh, there's a tremendous advantage in knowing who is and who isn't at increased risk. So you can do the surveillance, intense surveillance on those that are at risk and not have to put the others th that aren't at increased risk through the same uh, sorts of surveillance. With that, Garrett, can you tell a little bit about how you identify who should be initially screened for a cancer predisposition syndrome? And then how would they then be qualify to fit into a cancer predisposition clinic or screening program? Right. So that's a very good question. And, and if someone does not have cancer, um, there are really just two ways you can identify those patients. One is by family history. So there's a family history of other children or other adults getting certain cancers that suggest they might have a particular syndrome. The other way is by physical features of a syndrome. So if they have cafe au lait spots, they may have neurofibromatosis. If they have hemihypertrophy, they may have Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome and be at increased risk for Wilms tumor and hepatoblastoma. If they have macrocephaly and developmental delay, they may have P10 syndrome and be at increased risk for thyroid cancer and other cancers later on in life. So there, there can be physical features. But if, if they don't have a cancer, those are the main ways you know. If they do have a cancer, then there are a lot of other clues. One is sometimes, not always, patients who, are, who have hereditary predisposition have either bilateral or multifocal cancer. So they can have multiple cancers in one eye or bilateral retinoblastoma, for example, or multiple tumors in one kidney or both kidneys for if they're predisposed to Wilms tumor. If they get cancers at an earlier age than expected. So colon cancer or a pheochromocytoma or adrenocortical carcinoma in a child or adolescent, which is generally doesn't occur. If they have specific types of cancer that are unique to syndromes, such as choroid plexus carcinoma, a brain tumor that occurs in Lee Framini syndrome, um, or pleuropulmonary blastoma that occurs in Dicer-1 syndrome. So there are certain unusual cancers that suggest a particular syndrome. And, and finally, and perhaps import, very importantly, in most major medical centers now in the civilized world, um, at least the tumors are being analyzed at a genetic level. And it, we call it genomics actually for the tumor uh, and look for somatic or acquired changes that occurred just in the cancer cells. But you can also identify by looking at the cancer cells that derive from the normal cells that there are mutations in genes that could have put them at in, not only at increased risk for cancer, but for that cancer that they got. So uh, if you found uh, a child with an embryonal rhabdomyosarcoma with anaplasia and they have a TP53 mutation, well, that would suggest they have Lee-Framini syndrome, and there, the TP53 mutation found in the tumor could also be in the normal cells of the body. So uh, for all of these reasons, if you suspect someone's at increased risk, 
then refer them to a, a someone who does what we do, a cancer predisposition uh, program. In in some cases, it isn't specifically for cancer. It does other things as well. So, uh, but someone who would recognize them know what are the right tests to do. Do you test for a single gene or a, a few genes or a panel of genes? Um, and it all depends on the circumstances. And you, then you identify if they're at increased risk. So if they have a predisposition gene, let's say TP53 in this three-year-old with environmental rhabdo, then you want to know, did one of the parents inherit it? Because they're at risk for cancer the rest of their lives. They need to get screened too. So you check the parents. And if they're negative, usually that's the end of the story. But if one of them is positive, then you want to test other kids. If there are other kids, you want to go up that branch of the pedigree and test you know, the ones who might have inherited until you either, no one's live or or they, they don't want to be tested or you've proven they do or don't have the gene. So um, that's that's really how we approach it. And then for everyone who's at increased risk, you do surveillance. So what is surveillance? That's a very good question. Um, <laughs> and and uh, so, I was just going to say, this is a fantastic transition into talk about what it means to be. <laughs> and, and also as well incorporate maybe into that some of the the national efforts in sort of the data collection or how how important is it to actually participate in registries or clinical trials for these types of of syndromes or surveillance type of protocols um, and your thoughts on that. So excellent questions. I'm going to break it into two parts. The first part is the databases to be able to interpret um, germline findings. And the second will be surveillance. So how do you know if there's a sequence variation in TP53 or some other gene that it's pathogenic, that it puts them at increased risk to get cancer? And the main way we know is because there are other families that have had the same exact mutation who have the syndrome, who show all the features and the uh, multiple members of the family that develop the anticipated cancers. There are other ways to tell. There are prediction algorithms and uh, that can predict what would be effect of like this amino acid change at this spot in the gene that can tell you well, that's going to mess up the folding, uh, the alpha helix or something, or it can lead to a stop codon or to you know nonsense to change the reading frame. So you, you can predict looking at the type of change, what it might do. But if you just see a missense mutation. So you've just switched one amino acid for another. How do you know that's pathogenic? The main way is, is for other families that have the same thing that, and, and so you go to ClinVar or to other databases and, and look to see, has this been found before? And is this considered pathogenic or likely pathogenic? Or is it a VUS, a variation of unknown significance or uncertain significance? Or is it considered likely benign or for sure benign, where it's been seen in hundreds of families or thousands of, of families or people and, and none of them have the syndrome. So it's extremely important to have this information you know, collected nationally and internationally because these syndromes, relatively speaking, are rare. 
And there's no one center that's going to accumulate enough evidence to, to, to know everything it would want to know about the, you know, as I say, the couple hundred predisposition genes that could be, uh, that could have sequence variations that aren't pathogenic or that are, and to know which, which way it is. So um, that's extremely valuable and hopefully will collect things not only regionally and nationally, but internationally and, and every anyone in the world will be able to access the databases and see what information exists or if this mutation has been found before. What constitutes surveillance? And I mean, you referred to the fact of here's, you know, we'll pick up a grape instead of a grapefruit, but does that really matter? And you've got a bunch of different syndromes how do we know that the surveillance that we're doing makes a difference and what constitutes surveillance? Okay. So the first question is, should we do surveillance? Yes or no for a given syndrome or mutation. And I'll talk about maybe AACR and what they've contributed to this uh, later on. But but the consensus agreement is it's something around 1% risk of getting a certain type of cancer in the pediatric age group is considered sufficient to warrant uh, surveillance, assuming that surveillance isn't too onerous on the patient. So, so the first is, do you do surveillance, yes or no? So let's say yes. Then what do you do? How often do you do it? Um, when does it start? When does it stop, if ever? And does it change over time? Like you do surveillance for certain things when you're a child or adolescent and other things when you're an adult. And the answer is, you know, for some you do and for some you don't, you stop. When they get to be seven or nine, you, you, or you stop doing uh, surveillance for certain syndromes and you don't have to worry about uh, things later on. So what, what constitutes surveillance? Well, it's basically a physical exam, uh, blood tests, and diagnostic imaging, and then in some cases, special exams. So, so the, the diagnostic imaging is we try to avoid radiation. So we try not to do x-rays or particularly CT scans. Uh, we use MRIs and ultrasounds as the mainstay because there's no cumulative risk of multiple surveillance tests. And then the special tests are examination of the eyes under anesthesia for retinoblastoma, examination of the colon if you're at risk for GI cancers, and examination, you know, uh, ultrasound of the thyroid for thyroid cancer and so forth. But the surveillance is tailored to the risk associated with that particular syndrome. One caveat related to that is what we call genotype-phenotype correlation. So is does the type of mutation or the location of the mutation in the gene predict that the syndrome will be any different in that family or those individuals? So uh, there there can be what we call high risk mutations where almost everyone gets certain cancers, or and there can also be what are called attenuated mutations where. They get the same syndromes, but they get them later. They don't get as many. Not everyone gets them. Uh, so we're, we're trying to learn, again, from the databases that you pointed out that we desperately need. Um, we need to get information like we not only say, yes, this is pathogenic, but what about is there a mutation in this domain versus that domain? If it's a missense versus a nonsense or a stop codon you know, versus a, you know, a frame shift. How does that affect 
their risk? To, are they more or less likely to get it or get it earlier or get different types of cancer or certain types within the syndrome? Uh, so all that's very important. So does surveillance work? Yes, it works. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, it's, it's easier for me to say it seems intuitively obvious it should work. If you pick up, a, again, a grape uh, rather than a grapefruit in the liver or the kidney, not only can you spare them, you know, resection of the entire organ, like the entire kidney and Wilms tumor, when they typically present clinically the whole kidneys shot, uh, but you can just wedge out the the tumor, it's much less likely to have spread throughout the abdomen and much less throughout the body. Usually you can avoid radiation and therapy is less, survival is better, they do well. And, and similar things for if it's in the liver or certain other sites. There haven't been that many really well-controlled studies. And, and I think that's what's gonna change in the future with the cooperative group activity through COG and things sponsored by AACR. There have been a couple studies that people point to related to Lee-Framini syndrome, uh, where either surveillance was done or wasn't done. And in general, the, the patients decided not to do surveillance or they did. So it wasn't a true randomized study, but there are two publications from David Malkin's group, Anita Vellani's first author, in uh, JAMA Oncology in 2011 and 2016, where they clearly show a highly statistically significant difference between those that got tumors picked up by surveillance versus those that presented clinically and weren't getting surveillance. And the outcome was, you know, more than double what it was for those that weren't getting surveillance, a substantial improvement. There have been similar studies done for Beckwith-Wiedemann syndrome and Wilms tumor hepatoblastoma. There haven't been a lot of other studies in the pediatric age group, but I think that's one of the areas of focus of the cancer predisposition working group within COG, uh, that they're they're very interested in, uh, in, in doing that. And that group is led by Chris Porter and Anita Bellani. And can I just ask it's sort of a real practical question about surveillance and screening? And, and given that you just mentioned sort of not a ton of data, except we kind of feel like there is at least some data to say that, yes, this really truly makes a difference. And there's an opportunity there to do more. In the in kind of the industrialized world, we're dependent on in especially in the United States, third-party payers to cover our medical costs. Is it ever an issue that surveillance is not covered or not accepted as essentially almost the standard of care for, for children with cancer predisposition syndromes? Yeah, so I would say overall, we've been pretty successful in getting it covered. I'd say it's sometimes an uphill battle with insurance companies. This gives me the opportunity to mention a little bit what AACR has uh, brought to the table. So um, around the time that I was taking over this program, I happened to be the chair of the Pediatric Cancer Working Group within AACR, and they supported an international workshop on cancer predisposition and surveillance with people from all over the world, from as far away as Australia and Israel, you know, a lot of people from North America and Europe, but we had let uh, 65 people from 11 countries. We divided the syndromes into several working groups, and we ended up publishing 
18 papers, 14 of which were on the disease and a couple of which were intros and, and, and the radiologists and the genetic counselors uh, perspectives and things. But those papers that were published in ACR journals, clinical cancer research in 2017, mostly June and July 2017, have helped a lot in the United States where we have to battle with insurance companies to get things covered, genetic testing to get that covered and to get surveillance covered. So being able to point to those as these are the international standards of what we should be doing. So that has helped a lot. Most other countries don't have this problem. They, they have national health care insurance and air health care, and, and you don't have to uh, uh, fight as much to get normal things done. But uh, but still, I think what AACR contributed, not only bringing, as you said, bringing attention to this particular area and, and the increasing uh, our increasing appreciation of how frequently uh, children with cancer are predisposed, but but uh, also what we can do about it. And uh, and surveillance is is one thing. There is an interest in developing better surveillance, enhanced surveillance. And um, one of the approaches to this is what's called a liquid biopsy, which is basically a blood sample. Uh, I'm not sure why they call it a liquid biopsy, but it's, it's a blood sample where you separate out the cells and you look at what's left and see whether there's any DNA or RNA or microRNAs or whatever in there. Most people focus on the DNA, I would say, because it's a very stable molecule and even small fragments can be readily amplified and, and uh, evaluated. So it may be that we can detect evidence of circulating DNA that wasn't there six months ago, but just is, is, an, is there in a new sample. And that can suggest not only that they have a cancer, but, but in under some circumstances, even where it might be. Like the methylation pattern of certain tissues are relatively predictable. And so if normally what you should have in the blood are cells from, I don't know, the blood. <laughs> and, and so if you suddenly see a methylation pattern that's more consistent with kidney or liver or muscle or brain, then that wasn't there on a prior analysis, or you saw a little bit maybe the last time, but now you see a bunch more. Well, that tells you there's something going on and it would prompt you to investigate with diagnostic imaging more thoroughly. So liquid biopsies is one thing. Um, another area I think is very exciting is, is the microbiome, which is particularly good for colon cancer or GI cancers, but could be used potentially to inform other types of cancer as well. Because it's not only do you see evidence of abnormal mutated human DNA in the stool, but there are certain bacteria that produce endotoxins that dramatically influence the development of polyps in colon cancer. And if you see that they're there, not only can you use this for detection, but you can use it for prevention. You can change the microbiome. You can do a microbiome transplant at home on the weekend, <laughs> almost. I mean, you you can literally do a colonoscopy prep, take some non-absorbable antibiotics like neomycin, and then restore from above or below uh, with probiotics that are favorable and don't have these enterotoxins. And you could potentially delay, reduce, or even eliminate the development of certain of colon cancers or other GI cancers. So uh, that's another thing that's being examined, as well as enhanced um, imaging. 
uh, with what's called contrast ultrasound or PET MRIs or MR spectroscopy and different things where you can get more information about a tissue that can help you identify what's an incidental finding versus what's a precancerous lesion. Well, Garrett, you actually just took me right into what was going to be my kind of next steps question. And you just answered exactly where I, I kind of wanted to sort of come to towards now that we're heading to the end of our time together. And I have thoroughly enjoyed this. I think one of the things that's so evident to me sort of from our conversation is that one is the importance of working on some of these consensus statements as a as a scientific community and how that those efforts between ACR, the children's oncology group, the pediatric oncology community at large is so important to making changes like implementation of surveillance as standard of care so critically important and that it's really a huge community effort and 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 I thank you for 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 being a huge leader in that and and clearly that has evolved over over the years and I I also think too with the sort of explosion of the genomic age we're now starting to realize that things that we thought were maybe that 1% are maybe much more than that. And I think as we learn more, we're going to understand that um, things may not be as rare as we think. And and I guess in closing, I I would love just your thoughts are, and and you, you touched on this, it's sort of moving to that maybe there's the surveillance, but then there's also potential for prevention and early intervention to truly change the course that isn't just early picking up something, um, but truly intervening. And do you think that that will become increasingly more important as we get better and better at some of these molecular techniques of of, uh, isolating very early evidence of of cancer? Exactly. Again, a wonderful question. Um, I think two things. One is we're going to get information about the germline on eventually, I think, virtually every patient with cancer. And in, in actually, in the not too distant future, you may get your heel stick when you're born. And instead of a PKU test, they'll do a whole exome sequencing and we'll, we'll have all this information like it on, on date three or, or 10 or something. Um, and we'll know early on who is and who isn't predisposed which I personally think is a good thing, but it's everyone has to make their own decision about that. But I never th- thought in my professional career that I would think seriously about being able to prevent childhood cancer. And, and I, I still think preventing all childhood cancer is still a, a whole different problem. But in these high-risk patients and families, where we know the gene and the protein and the pathway that's involved. And in some cases, we already have drugs that modulate those pathways that inhibit the signaling through RAS uh, or PI3 kinase or other pathways, or they inhibit upstream the the inhibitors that are mutated like ALK in in neuroblastoma or the EGF receptor or uh, RET in multiple endocrine neoplasias and things like that. So we already have drugs that can manipulate those pathways. And we're beginning to see 
clinical trials to see if they can delay or prevent the development of the features of the syndrome. So I'll give you one example. There's a syndrome called P10 syndrome. P10 is a, an inhibitor of the PI3 kinase AKT mTOR signaling pathway. And if you are missing one copy or missing one of your breaks and, and that signaling occurs you know, more than it should. Um, and there are drugs that can inhibit that like uh, serolimus or serolimus, however you say it. So th there's already been a, a study looking at the effect of serolimus on patients with P10, not looking at cancer predisposition because it's it's rare enough in the, it's only about 5% of the uh, children under age 20 will develop thyroid cancer, but they're looking at the effects on the neurological features that are associated with the syndrome in, in many cases, not all, to see whether uh, behavior or cognition or autism and things like that could be improved by this sort of therapy. So we're already starting to do this type of, of therapy. And I, I think there's going to be more and more of this, uh, obviously, in, in controlled clinical trials. That's the way we have to do things. We can't just, you know, anecdotally, hey, why don't you try some of this for a while and see if it helps? Uh, I think we have to learn because the drugs have side effects and long-term administration may have side effects we're not fully aware of. But, but I, I do think we're at a point where going forward, we're going to start to see more and more of not just surveillance trials, but prevention trials for predisposed individuals, which I think is extremely exciting. Yeah. And on that exciting note, I, I share that excitement when you really can start to think about how can we actually prevent this and and not just be reactionary to to an actual diagnosis? It is exciting. I thank you so much, uh, Garrett, for your incredible not only words today, but also the work that you've done over these mm -hmm. many years to really get to a point that's transformative for for children and families with cancer predisposition syndrome. Mm -hmm. So thank you for thank your you. time and thank you for your work. Well, um, it takes a village. It's uh, I'm happy to talk about it, but you know, uh, I work with people in my lab. I work with people across the country. It, it's it's uh, I, uh, I I'm pleased to play a role, but it, we're all important. So, wow. thank, thank you. you so much for having me. Absolutely, and looks like that's it for this week. Thank you to Dr. Garrett Brodeur from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for a wonderful session on cancer predisposition. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology. We welcome your comments, questions, or thoughts on topics for future episodes. Just drop us a note at twibbo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can follow Dr. Kripe on Twitter at kidsumpdoc. Send an email to Dr. Weigel at weige007 at umn.edu. And find all Twipo episodes at solvingkidscancer.org.